A reading from Esther. The king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me. That is my petition, and the lives of my people. That is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace, but no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he that has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. Mordecai recording these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the same month, year by year, as the days on which Jews gained relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. The word of the Lord. We read Psalm 124 by the half verse as indicated by the asterisk. If the Lord had not been on our side, if the Lord had not been on our side, then would they have swallowed us up alive. Then would the waters have overwhelmed us. Then would the raging waters Blessed be the Lord. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Our help is in the name of the Lord. A reading from James. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul, soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. 
The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out unclean spirits in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who knows a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, who can season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. The scene we get from the gospel today is actually probably a continuation of what we read last week. So remember last week, Jesus took up a small child in his arms and said, whoever welcomes one of these welcomes the one who sent me. Well, he says, whoever welcomes one of these welcomes me. And if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. And then perhaps Jesus is still holding this child And John says, Jesus, we saw somebody casting out unclean spirits in your name, and we said, quit it, because they're not on our team. (laughs) Jesus, still holding the child, says, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that, because, uh, listen, the team is bigger than you thought. Now, you read in your bulletin today, it In the bulletin it says, the reading says, we saw someone casting out demons. But I think this is really important for you to know, there's no such word in Greek. Well, I mean, there is. The Greek word demon means in English one thing. It means unclean spirit. In Greek, there's a word baptize. It means to dunk. Baptize is a made-up word in English. It's not a real word. It means to immerse somebody. Demon is the same thing. Unclean spirit. What's an unclean spirit? I mean, it could be the red, spade-tailed, horned, pitchfork thing, but I think it's actually scarier things than that. I think it's things like sexism and ageism and racism. Those are unclean spirits. I think it's things like alcohol and substance abuse. Those are unclean spirits. I think it's things like shame and guilt and fear and terror Those are unclean spirits. 
They divide us from the joy that God intends for us to live into. And so Peter, I'm sorry, John sees somebody driving an out an unclean spirit, making somebody else's life bigger. And he says, don't do that. Don't make somebody else's life bigger because you're not doing it well in the name of our team. So quit it, you Lutherans. <laughs> quit it, you Fill in the blank. And I mean that. And let's not just think about denominations. Let's not just think about other religions. If you don't mind me saying, and you might, let's think about the way we make policy and we talk to one another in this country about political issues. Jesus, we saw a Democrat helping somebody and we said quit it because they're not Republicans. That's how the text reads, friends. And Jesus says, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. The criterion for being on God's team is whether or not you are enhancing somebody else's life. And if that's happening, you're on the team. Pretty sure that's why we have this rather strange combination of the gospel and the story of Esther. Now, if you're Jewish... Esther is the least important book in the Bible. This is true. Esther comes dead last in the Jewish Bible. We don't have the same order as the Jewish Bible. We don't. Esther's dead last, which means it's the least important. The reason for that, interestingly enough, is that Esther actually never uses God's name. Uh, probably the reason it's there is because there's this Jewish festival that's going to happen pretty soon called Purim. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Purim. Um, a pure is a lot, so it's like a special dice. Uh, you can sort of fortune tell or predict things with it. That's because in the story, and, and remember, the lectionary presumes you already know the story. In case you don't, I'm going, just going to give you the background. Once upon a time, there was a civil servant named Mordechai. Mordechai was a good civil servant. There was a threat against the king. Mordechai found out, told the king, saved the king's life. Good job, civil servant. There was another civil servant named Haman. Now this word, if you're Jewish, is so bad that at the festival of Purim, you have a noisemaker called a grogger, and you shake it so that no one can hear the name Haman because it's worse than the name Hitler. Haman doesn't like Mordechai because Mordechai won't bow down to him. Haman decides based on that one reason, because Mordechai won't bow down to Haman to commit genocide against the Jewish people, because Mordechai is Jewish. So this guy I don't like, this guy I don't like, because he doesn't give me what I want. It must be because he's Jewish and all Jewish people should die, and he is able to make that a law with King Ahasuerus. Plot twist. Mordechai's orphan niece. Her parents die when she's young. Her name's Esther. She's an orphan, which means she has no value. She's going to be a slave or a prostitute or both. Mordechai is able somehow to get her, well, a royal appointment. Beyond that, she becomes the queen. And nobody knows she's Jewish, which is why if you go to a Purim carnival today, everybody wears a mask because Esther's Jewish identity was a secret. 
It's a big secret. How she kept it a secret, we don't know. I suppose she did not say the candle blessing on Shabbat for King Ahasuerus, because that would have been a giveaway. Uh, perhaps she did not wear a shadal. You may or may not know this. That's like a hijab in Hebrew, a shadal, when she went out in public. Maybe she didn't wear that. Somehow, no one knows she's Jewish. She hears about this law, and she's afraid to go to the king, because if you go to the king without being summoned, you'll be killed. Beyond that, the king's made a law that Jewish people are going to be killed, and she's Jewish. Big risk, right? Uncle Mordechai says, you've got to go to the king. Esther says, that's dangerous. Mordechai says, listen, Esther, you've gone from orphan to queen, and maybe that life journey happened for such a moment as this. Maybe what you thought was random and was good fortune actually has put you precisely in the place where you can intercede for us, your family, for yourself. You might escape this. You might escape this. But you actually never will escape this. Because you will have to live with the fact that you consigned your people to death. So today... Esther takes off her mask, and she says, King, there's a rule. My people are going to be destroyed. My people. I'm Jewish. And this is one of those moments that no doubt has happened to you in your life, if you're like me. You had a category. Let's make one up. All blank people are bad or ignorant or wrong. Fill in the blank with whatever you want. Could be... Lutherans, could be Democrats, could be blank. I don't know what your blank is today. You have this label and the sensitivity that all the people of a group were such and such a way. And then oddly enough, you made a friend with somebody and then found out they belonged to that group. Then you have this crisis. <laughs> Was that friendship a sham? Were they fake and bad people? Or was my label a sham? I haven't always made the right call in my lives, folks. I've told you this story before. I was a kid. I grew up against women in ministry. I had a woman who was a minister. She flipped the category for me because that woman was my pastor even though she didn't believe she could be a pastor. Thank God I made the change. Thank God Ahasuerus makes the change because he's going to lose the queen over this. Don't you see? He sees the stakes and he switches because he knows somebody. Again, think of the times where we haven't made the switch, where we've said, you know, I thought we were friends, <laughs> but you voted for John Kerry and I hate you. I wish it were that funny. We have sacrificed friends and human beings for some principle, which is what John's doing. Don't you see in the gospel, John's saying, we saw someone giving life and we told them to quit because they weren't on our side. And Jesus says, friend, you got it all wrong. I think what Jesus is asking us today, this is going to sound far-fetched, so you've just got to be patient with me. I think Jesus is asking us to think about how we set our defaults. I read a book about five years ago called The Empathy Gap. It's all about defaults. 
The empathy gap is actually very data-driven. And it says, you know, in general, it's people. We want to make the world a better place. In general, we believe in saving money. In general, we believe in helping people who are in crisis. So the book says, why essentially are we so bad at doing that stuff? What's the gap between our empathy and our practice? And what the book argues actually pretty well, I think, is that um, it has to do with our default. So consider, I don't think this has changed, organ donor. The default is you're not one, you have to opt in. 20% of people opt in. In Finland, the default is you are an organ donor unless you opt out. 9% of people opt out. Well, that's a pretty big difference, isn't it? Uh, I've worked for companies before that did a 401k match up to 5%. Every percent you put in, they match up to 5%. You had to opt in. Believe me, I was an early adopter. <laughs> like half of people opt in. Did you know that? Like half of people, they say, no, I don't want that free employer contribution. I'd rather just not even have it. Now, you're probably thinking, Mike, that's crazy. Nobody opts out of that. Yeah, they do. Because the default is you don't get it. This is what the book argues. When our default is no, we usually stay with the no. We usually stay with, I mean, we, 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 we stay with the factory default. Sometimes I wonder if our factory default isn't to avoid listening to somebody who's different from us until they force us to. That's what happens in the story. The king doesn't listen until his own wife says, you'll lose me. Sometimes we reprogram our defaults, but I wonder if part of this passage isn't to encourage us to do that before it's a crisis instead of later. Jesus resumes talking about this little kid or baby in his arms and says, beware of putting a stumbling block in the way of these. If you do that, it'd be better if you put a rock around your head and jumped in the ocean. Obviously, that's a hyperbole. But it makes me think, interestingly enough, about how it is that I parent my children to be the human adults I want them to be. What are the defaults I teach my kids? Oh, I know this is all controversial, but I'm going to tell you, I have a son and a daughter, and I recently read a study, you can dicker with the numbers if you want to, that said something like 90% of women have body shame. Body shame. That is, they are ashamed of their bodies. The number's much lower in men, something like 30%, although that number apparently is rising. How do I parent my daughter so that she grows up a relative anomaly and does not have body shame? This is a tough question. The answer, I think, <laughs> does not come from what I tell her. There's another book, you probably read this 20 years ago. In this parish, I'm suspicious many of us have read the book Freakonomics. 
Have you read Freakonomics, just curious? Freakonomics says that you want to know the biggest indicator about whether your children love books. The indicator is, frankly, do you love books? <laughs> you can do all kinds of reading enrichment. You can do all kinds of museum tours. None of that matters. You want your kids to read? You read. And they know you read. And ultimately, it boils down to how many books you own. Because you're showing your children that's where your value is. If I want my daughter not to have body shame, I can't have it myself. Don't you see? And it becomes really malicious to think through this. If I get rid of my body shame to teach her not to have it, it won't work. <laughs> if I get rid of it because I believe I'm worthy to enjoy the body I have, for my own self, it will. I hope that makes sense, what I just said. If we do something to be an example and we don't live into it, what we've shown them is the worst possible example. We've shown them that we're ashamed of ourselves and they shouldn't be. We weren't good enough, but they could be. And of course, what are they going to learn? That they're not good enough either. If you love your children, you'd better love yourself. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. And not just for them, but for you. What are our defaults about our bodies? What are our defaults when we interact with differences of opinion? Differences of value and belief. We can tell our children, you don't use hateful words in my house, do we? use hateful words. They will never listen to what we say if we don't do it. And I think that's part of what Jesus is asking us to do today. And I think what James is doing is actually telling us something really interesting about what our defaults are as a church. And think through some of this. If somebody's sick, your default is pray for them. Well, they may not want that. <laughs> your default is yes, you do it. Anoint them with oil. That's your default. They don't have to opt into that. You say, here's the oil. Can I give it to you? <laughs> well, I guess they still have to opt in. But you've got it there in front of them. Somebody sinned? Confess it. That's what you do. It's an interesting thing, because we're talking about kids. Read another whole book about why we don't apologize in general. You know why we don't apologize, especially with bad kids. You have to extract it from them. <laughs> I mean, you, you really have to manipulate the circumstances to get the I'm sorry. You apologize or you're not getting blank. And then when we get it, Dad, I'm sorry, I took the cookies. Well, you should be and don't do it again. I, I mean, maybe that's just me. Sorry. <laughs> uh, what we teach them is... You have to utterly debase yourself to apologize instead of an apology comes from a commitment to a relationship in which I can change and make things better. When we hear an apology, do we say, you're darn right, or do we say, thank you for apologizing. That means a lot that you took the time to say that. The book that I read says the reason we don't apologize as adults is because people don't accept apologies very well. 
Now, I don't mean that we don't change. Listen, we know it's important when we do something wrong, what we do is change. But we discount the language. Our default is apologies have to go a certain way, and frankly, the default's wrong. James is saying when we do something wrong, go apologize. That's what it means to confess your sin. I did the wrong thing, and I'm sorry. And on the other side, we say, thank you for your apology. It means something to me that you took the time to say that. If those were our defaults, I bet you we'd apologize more than we do. Instead of, yeah, you said that and it really hurt me. Think through that with me. What are our defaults? What difference would it make in our world? (laughs) This sounds like such a small thing if we actually apologized when we were wrong. And we accepted that. Do you think that would put you on the team of more life for people? I do. I do. And I want to tell you something really good about you, because this is the fall. We think about stewardship. There's no trick here, but you know, I would, would, would you think about this? defaults. Frankly, because of the way you pledge, the church's default gets to usually be, yeah. So somebody we don't know says, can we have a funeral at St. Thomas? Our default is yes. Well, we're not sure about a reception. Our default is we give you one. (laughs) Uh, hey, we don't go to your church, we're not even really Episcopalians, but we'd like to get married in the building after the fall festival. (laughs) The default is yes, because you allow that to happen. Don't you see? You allow that to happen. This is part of why I'm grateful to be a full-time clergy member. I can say yes to weddings after fall festivals because that's why you have us. I'm not joking. When somebody says, my father's died and I want to have an internment in College Station, will you come? The default gets to be, don't you see, yes. The default is yes. Why not? Instead of, oh, bend over backwards. You want the church involved with your life? Well, you should prove it by going through eight weeks of classes. No, in general, the default is we will bend over backwards because you want the church involved in any way. You create that here, don't you see? That's our default. Our default determines, frankly, whether or not we do things like save money. The empathy gap says, you know, in general, people wish they'd save more money, more money than they do, and part of it is because we get paid and then we have to move from checking into savings. If our default was a portion of our money went straight to savings, we would save more because we'd never have to think about it. Just that one time, it would be done. What are our defaults? Defaults are ways in which we live into our values. They're ways in which we follow Christ. They're ways, frankly, on which we're either on the team that gives life or takes it. Are our defaults to look affirmatively at other people first? Are our defaults to listen before we judge? You ever met somebody, didn't matter 
what the information said, they were not going to change their mind because they already believed X. I've met all kinds of those people this week. You have too. Is that our default or are we willing to listen? By the way, I didn't give you a partisan position, did I? I said we don't listen to each other. And that's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. What's our default going to be? I forgot what I was really supposed to tell you. I just got a little excited. <laughs> it's been an interesting week for all of us. I talked about my mom a little bit last week, so I'm going to talk to you about how my mom modeled living into her values for me. I knew that my mom's first check after she got paid was to the church. I knew that. I always knew that. She told me, and I think I saw her do it. I didn't really look at the amount. I probably shouldn't have. What I've come to learn is that my mother, who was supporting two kids, and my dad, who was a small business owner whose business was mostly a wash every year, she was supporting us on $40,000 a year, and she, her first check was 10% of her income. Later, I realized it wasn't her net, it was her gross. And that that was the minimum she gave. That was the beginning point. She also supported three or four different missionaries and three or four different civil organizations. There were days where my mom would go out after school. She didn't come straight home, and I always thought, Mom's out with your friends. Well, she sort of was, but they weren't always people that she knew. My mom in the early 80s had a double mastectomy because she had breast cancer, and those days when she didn't come straight home after school, she went to the hospital to be with women she didn't know who'd also had mastectomies, single or double, to say, listen, this is hard. Let's talk about it. I've been there. I'll be here with you. My mom did those things because those were her defaults. Don't you see? We as a family were important. I didn't suffer for lack of my mom's attention. What I learned, though, was that her attention was not just for us. It was for other people, even ones she'd never met. You see, because she decided to be on the team that gives life to other people. And I noticed that my mom... <laughs> This is an interesting thing about her default. She didn't pull out her checkbook in church and go, oh, I just... She'd already decided what she was doing. And she joyfully lived into her values every time. I'm going to tell you that's why I pledge. That's why I pledge. I think about it so that I don't have to think about it again. I want to be a generous person. I believe in generosity. Not just with money, of course, but with a time. And with my presence. What are my defaults? What are my defaults? Am I living into my values or not? That's, I think, what Jesus is asking us to do. Are we setting up defaults that allow us to live into our values? Or are we affirming values and not doing them? I, mean, I just think that's the whole bit. Right? Is it valuable to listen to somebody you probably disagree with? You have to answer that question. Is it valuable to give your time and your empathy to people you don't know? Is it valuable to give to people who may not even want what you're trying to give. 
you have to answer that question. But I think the gospel is asking us, what are our defaults? What are our defaults? And do our defaults reflect our values? Now listen, if we value partisanship in church or in the world, we don't really need much coaching on how to do that, do we? I mean, I think we pretty much get what that looks like. In the story of Esther, notice that it looks like genocide. That is the consequence of partisanship to the extreme. I just pray we don't value that. I pray we'll take some time to set some different defaults. After all, the metaphor we get for the church is that we are the body of Christ on earth. Now Jesus goes on to say, listen, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I don't actually think Jesus is saying, <laughs> if a splinter cell of heretics in your church have a different theology of you, you should remove them. Instead, I think Jesus is telling us to really consider, do we want to live without a hand? Or in fact, isn't the amazing part about the body that it's made of many different members who in general cooperate to do increasingly amazing things. Notice that Jesus isn't talking in this passage about whether we go to hell when we die. He's talking about whether we choose to live in hell right now. We often forget this. <laughs> we often forget that this life is as important to God as the life we get later, which is exactly why all these defaults matter. And it's not just so that we can give till, it's, till it hurts. God's default is that we give until it feels good. It's not just so we can say, well, there's no gift too small. It's so that we can say, there is no gift too big and that we pattern our lives after those defaults that we give until it feels good for us and the world because there is no gift too big in the heaven God intends for us to enjoy right now.